0: It's Friday, January 15th, and we're talking about another big IPO. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's acute accelerator of articulating awesome asset allo. Oh, you got me, Brian, you finally got me. (laughs) Awesome asset allowance arguments, Brian Feroldi, Uh, as if he needed an introduction. Was it the allowance tripped you up? Were you expecting allocation? Is that I was. the trick? I was. <laughs> you know. Yes. The brain works in mysterious ways. All right, uh, now I know. And- uh, yeah, you know, I had a great run. As it you turns did. out,
1: <laughs> Dylan, great job, great job. Took me like thirty tries to get you, so success. Uh,
0: well, if, if if listeners can't figure it out, we're talking about a company that starts with an A. Uh, given the alliteration that Brian dropped in his title, uh, specifically, we're talking about a firm today, and this is a show that our colleagues Matt Frankel and uh, Jason Moser did a little while ago, back in November when the prospectus came available, shares hit the market this week, so we're going to be talking about it. Uh, but, Brian, I think before we even really get too too far deep into the show, I want to ask you, is, is this a business that you have seen on the consumer side, just browsing around on the internet?
1: I have not. This is a company that specializes in the uh, the buy now, pay later, or pay installments over time. Uh, I'm not their target consumer, so I haven't interacted with it, but they, they seem to have a whole lot of raving fans, Dylan.
0: You know, I will say, I have noticed that little button, you know, buy with a firm, pay with a firm, starting to crop up on more and more websites. And, and I think I first noticed it when I was doing some research for a show on Peloton uh, back when that S1 came available. And we're going to talk about their relationship in a little bit. But this is one where I think, even just on the consumer side, you can start to see this showing up in more and more checkout interfaces. You start seeing it on more and more product listing sites online.
1: Yeah, their their primary company, their primary competitor is a company called Afterpay, and uh, I know that the uh, buy now, pay later uh, installment is really picking up steam, and there are a lot of consumers that are asking for and demanding this technology.
0: Yeah, and and we're gonna get into a variety of reasons why this is appealing, both on the consumer side and the merchant side. I think maybe the easiest way to kind of put all of this together into a nice bow for folks that are unfamiliar is this is basically layaway for. The 21st century. I think that might be the easiest way to think about it.
1: I think that's a pretty fair uh, description. I mean, this company is basically out to make credit cards for millennials. If if, if you could, it's it's eliminating all of the bad things about credit cards while uh, enabling all the good things about credit cards.
0: Yeah, and the mission really hammers that home: deliver honest financial products that improve lives. Uh that that's pretty straightforward and it, and it really speaks to what they are trying to do and what they're trying to kind of correct when it comes to the financial system.
1: I love mission-driven companies and I love it love it love it when companies put it right in their S1 up front first thing you see our mission. So check check for a firm there.
0: Yeah. Um and just some quick details on the IPO. Uh it came public earlier this week. Uh, up over 100% (laughs) on the first day of trading. Uh, Hard to believe. I feel like we've been saying that a lot, Brian. Um, They raised a pretty decent amount of cash, uh, but they did wind up obviously leaving a lot of money on the table.
1: They raised over $1.2 billion at $49 per share. As we're taping this, it's around $113. So yes, they could have raised basically twice as much money for the same amount of dilution.
0: Yeah. And uh, you know, it, we'll talk about the IPO process and, and really why we keep seeing this in 2020 and 2021. But I do wonder if this is something that will be fixed at some point because we've seen so many mispriced IPOs over the last 12, 13 months.
1: Could be a big reason why the SPAC boom is taking off and why director listings could get uh, more popular. And Dylan, I'm glad you pointed this out because when we were doing show notes, I just quickly used that glance at Yahoo Finance to get some information on this company. And it says their market cap's $13 billion. That's incorrect. The actual market cap of this company is about twice as high. So just be forewarned if you're looking at Yahoo Finance data.
0: Always good when you're looking at a data aggregator to make sure that they've got it right. maybe check your sources in a couple place, places and then this is not in any way to throw Yahoo Finance under the under the bus here because you, you catch it anywhere. you know the the reality is a lot of those places are just making sense of a lot of data in a lot of different spots. Um, so you know always gut check it and worst case, Brian, do the math on an, uh, on a napkin or an envelope, right? Figure out how many shares they have, figure out the share prices and you can work your way to that number pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, just don't do what I do and assume that whatever Yahoo said was correct. Correct there. Thank you for for, for correcting that, and I'm sure it will be corrected uh, in time. This is clearly a popular company, and that kind of data fills in over time as the company gets uh, go, go, uh, is uh, public for a little while longer.
0: So, Brian, j- just to walk through exactly what people do when they're interacting with a firm, I-, I teased it a little bit earlier, but basically, you are shopping online, you see something that you want to purchase. It's probably a more expensive item if you're interacting with a firm. Um, You have the option to buy it currently, or rather than buy it all up front, paying that cash all up front, you can purchase it now and wind up making installment payments over the course of the next 12 months, maybe three years, depending on how you wind up structuring it. Um, This feels a lot like the way that credit and debt works with a credit card, but it's different with how a firm is trying to position it.
1: There's a couple of uh, key differentiators here um, that are huge benefits for the consumer. Number one is transparency, and number two is uh, flexibility. So, to your point, let's say you are about to shop online, and something was going to cost you, say, a thousand dollars in spending. You could, of course, put that directly on your credit card, but then you risk all kinds of potential bad things happening down the road, such as uh, interest uh, compounding. If you miss a payment, there are uh, penalties, and there are, are fees, a lot of which are unknown to the consumer uh, at the time of the purchase. Uh, a firm kind of flips that on its head, and sa- and gives, uh, lets consumers kind of pick the terms that they want uh, for, uh, for repayment. All that information is put right up front, and there's a little sliding scale that consumers can use to determine how quickly they want to pay back the loan if it's longer than a certain uh, time period, I think the minimum is, uh, is uh, six weeks. They do charge interest uh, on the loan, but the interest is simple uh, interest. It is not compounding interest. So again, it offers consumers flexible payment terms and transparency with what they're going to pay.
0: I want to pull a couple lines here from the S1 because I think it really drives home how the company is looking at their relationship with customers. Uh, they write, we believe that consumers leave absolute immutable clarity in what they will pay and when it's due. We believe that the morality of each financial product offered to our consumers is a key consideration and an essential part of the Affirm brand. We put what is good for our consumers first and will never benefit from their mistakes or their misfortunes. Uh, I, I think that if you were to poll our listeners or our Fool members, there are probably a lot of people that have had to pay a credit card company or a bank because they've made a mistake at some point, whether it's an overdraft fee, um, you know, a late charge, something like that. I think one of the core things that this company is really trying to do is build trust and build long standing relationships with their consumers by not nickel and diming them.
1: I think that that speaks to this company's mission and they actually mean it when they say that. And that's a reason why they've kind of built up so much momentum uh, so quickly. I actually was happy to see when they were risking out their risks, one of the things they said is, we put our consumers first, sometimes at the expense of shareholders. So this company seems deadly serious about delivering for consumers.
0: I have to say, I was kind of surprised at how many customers they have. You know, it's always hard to get a sense of the scale for a business like this, because if you see it here and there, you might think, okay, there's there's enough of a critical mass for all of these merchants to be on board, but what does it actually look like? We have those details in the S1, 6.2 million customers and 3.9 million active customers, um, so folks that have used in the last year. That's actually quite a bit bigger than I thought it would be, Brian.
1: This company is only eight years old. Dylan. So to go from essentially a standing start uh, to, as you said, 6.2 million total uh, customers and 4 million of them have used the product in the last year, totally agree. That is impressive scale.
0: Now, the one thing that I did think was kind of interesting is. Pretty decent scale with the customer size. Um, the usage was lower than I thought it would be. We have 2.2 transactions per active customer, and I believe that's an annual statistic. Um, maybe, maybe when you think a little bit more about the kinds of purchases that tend to be used with a firm, it it starts to compute a little bit more. I guess if you're thinking about uh, what would make sense for a product like this, it's probably a four-digit purchase. You know, something in the thousands, or maybe something in the high hundreds. So maybe there aren't that many of those per year. But 2.2 did seem a little low to me.
1: That number was up over time, and they have plenty of use cases in theirs where they're they're more their longer serving cohorts are using the product as much as uh, as ten times per year. But I totally agree with you. Uh, the fact that there are six million total customers, and already essentially two point three million of them are inactive, uh, meaning that they haven't used the product in any year, is a potential risk. But uh, nonetheless, the, the the company scale is very exciting here.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that we'll have to answer over time with this business is, is this something that people use when it's incredibly convenient for them and they have it shown to them? Or is this something that they build a relationship with over time? And are they actively seeking out the ability to pay this way? Because, you know, if if you can be uh, taking something that would be a $1,500 purchase and paying it out in installments without any additional cost to you. That makes sense. You're you're willing to maybe jump through a hoop or two to make that happen, um, even if you're not trying to build a relationship with that company. What they really want, though, is to become the source of purchases that are of a a certain amount for those consumers. and That's going to be key, I think, to them really growing and sustaining the network effect that they seem to start to have.
1: Yeah, and that network effect is going to be critical to get propelling this company in the long term. But uh, to your point, let's knock out the rest of the scale. So while they have 3.9 million consumers, they've already signed up 6,500 uh, merchants. And this includes some some big name companies. Uh, they have Peloton on board. They have Walmart. They have Shopify. They have Eddie Bauer, Purple, Kate Spade, Priceline, Expedia, et cetera, et cetera. So 6,500 merchants are already on board. And importantly, a firm actually makes it, uh, allows consumers that uh, to pay with Affirm, even if their merchants are not uh, on on the platform as of yet. You can go to Affirm, get a one-time code and use that uh, to make a payment, and then that brings it back to the Affirm uh, platform. That's a small but growing part of the business, but as they build that out, that will definitely convince more merchants to join
0: yeah and I think that's a key for customer retention and really building a relationship with folks, right is being able to add that that access to capital, that ease of use and and the simple payment structure to things that then maybe create demand for merchants to offer them. You know, if, if you're a merchant and you see a lot of people using this one payment method, um, all of a sudden a firm looks pretty good to you as a partner, um, and certainly it's going to make the customers that are using it very happy.
1: Yeah, the data that we've seen show that there's a lot of benefits for merchants to to offer this. First off, Affirm has a net promoter score amongst its consumers of 78. I mean, that's unbelievably high, and that blows other financial institutions uh, out of the water. But if you partner with a firm, you get all kinds of benefits. You, uh, you increase your uh, customer uh, conversion rates. You get all kinds of, of data. It helps you to do dynamic pricing, to offer different discounts and promotions, to push consumers over the edge. And Their data says, if you use a firm, the average order value increases by 85% almost doubling the average ticket value uh, from your consumers, and it increases your repeat purchase rate by 20%. Holy cow, Dylan.
0: Yeah, and and I guess we shouldn't be as surprised as we are, right? If you make it easier for people to pay for things, they're probably going to be willing to pay for more things. Um, and and the personal finance, like you know, being safe with your money, part of my brain, Brian, does panic a little bit when I see numbers like that because you always want to make sure that people are spending in ways that they are able to pay for and they're not signing themselves up for too much. Um, you know, we we know that this is a company that is mission driven and is trying not to take advantage of folks. It's a big part of what they're doing, but it does give me a little bit of a heart attack sometimes when I see that.
1: Dylan, I am right there with you. On the one <laughs> hand, I love that they are eliminating fees and going on the consumer side. On the other hand, I really don't want people to be stretching themselves and buying things that they shouldn't in the first place. So I'm right there with you when it comes to, comes to the conflict.
0: Yeah. And, and I'm sure folks are wondering, okay, if, if we're not focusing on the fees, you know, the, the overdraft fees or the late fees, and, and we're with a simple interest model rather than a compound interest model, you know, where's the money coming from? And, and in fact, with this business, a, a big part of it is on the merchant side. And I think that's another big thing for them in attracting consumers and really building that strong network is they are basically saying, like, merchants are going to be footing the bill for, for a good chunk of what we're doing and for all the convenience that comes with being able to pay this way. We're not going to push that onto the consumers. That's probably another thing that works in their favor.
1: And again there are so many advantages for signing up as a merchant you can understand why they're willing to pay that I mean it's it, it's a good deal if you pay a few percent uh, back to a firm but you grow your average order volume by 85 percent so understandable why retailers are, are warming up to this but this company has numerous uh, sources of, of revenue five at my count and there's lots of room for that to uh, to grow over time so currently more than half of their sales as you say uh, come from from the merchants uh, the number that they use as an example is is roughly five uh, percent. So, if they sell one thousand dollars worth of goods on the on the Affirm platform, uh, the merchant will kick back about five percent uh, back to back to uh, to Affirm. As an origination, as an origination uh, fee, they also earn money from interest. Uh, sometimes they go out and they buy the loans that are being made from one of their uh, from one of their bank partners, and again, so that allows them to earn simple interest on their consumers' uh, purchases. That's about uh, 30% of revenue. Uh, sometimes they sell the the loans out in the marketplace, and they earn fees. Uh, they earn uh, uh, fees for for doing so. That's about 9% of revenue. Whenever somebody uses their virtual affirm number, so not with a merchant, uh, and they bring it over to a party that does not accept it, they do earn interchange fees for that. That's about 3% of revenue. And they also manage loans uh, for for third parties. Uh, That's only 2% of revenue. So the lion's share of revenue here is from uh, merchants and interest income, but they definitely have shown optionality with the willingness to open up new revenue opportunities.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and I think you know if you're just trying to to get the high level takeaway here, about eighty five percent of the business is going to be them, uh, collecting fees from merchants or collecting interest. That that's where almost all of it is right now. They have these other options, and I think this is a business with optionality. Um, and We can talk a little bit more about that, but for the foreseeable future, I think the next couple of years, that's going to be where the money comes from. Um, one thing that I, I think I probably need a little bit clarity of clarity on and need to do some more digging on, Brian, is where that 5% winds up clocking in, in the grand scheme of how payments get processed. I have a, a more primitive understanding of this than probably our our financials hosts uh, Jason Matt and John Maxfield, but I believe that's higher than typically what you would pay on the credit card processing side. I think that those are typically somewhere in like the one and a half to three and a half or maybe four percent range. So so on the merchant side, it is something where you're probably going to be forking over a little bit more than you normally would to facilitate transactions.
1: Yeah, uh, it might not be a one to one comparison. And that was just used as an example. They do say that that number does vary from partner to partner. But the example that they use in their own S1 is using a 5%. So I agree with you. It does seem high. But hey, if consumers are demanding it and merchants are making out uh, from, from the transaction, it makes sense to offer it.
0: Yeah, it, it certainly does. And, you know, Brian, you, you mentioned the gross merchandise volume growth earlier. Let's talk a little bit about what all of that translates into when we look at their financials, because uh, this is not a particularly old business, not necessarily a young business either, it's been around for a little while, um, but we're seeing some pretty high top-line growth rates
1: tremendous. And it makes sense why they're coming public now. They know, hey, we're growing fast and we're going to get a high valuation. And and boy, oh boy, have they done that. So uh, their their fiscal year ends in June. So we have data looking back uh, a year and also from the most recent quarter, uh, which ended in September. So for the fiscal year ending in June, revenue was up 93% uh, to $510 million. Last quarter, their revenue was up 98 8%. So that is some slight sequential uh, acceleration. Tricky thing here is how do you calculate gross margin? Because there are lots of puts and takes and there's big one of their biggest expenses, a uh, loss on loan purchase commitments, and they also have provision for uh, credit losses. So this isn't a company that you would typically, we wouldn't value this company the same way that we'd value another high growth uh, tech stock. So hard to come up with a, a gross margin or even look at the margin profile overall. However, we do know that they are uh, purposely uh, losing money. They spent a huge amount on uh, on sales and marketing over the last couple of months to really turbocharge business growth. But last quarter, their net loss was about $15 million. So $15 million net loss on $174 million in revenue. That is not a huge number, especially since post-IPO, they have $1.8 billion in cash.
0: Yeah, this isn't a, a company that's just lighting money on fire, you know, uh, with without any um, foresight into you know what what might become a profitable business down the road. You know, I, I think there's a path there. It drives me crazy when we don't have a sense of gross margin, just because that makes it a lot easier to kind of wrap your head around what a consistently profitable business maybe five years from now looks like. Um, I, I would always rather get that number from management than have to figure it out myself. Um, but you know, if if we're anchoring to somewhere in the mid 20s, that at least gives you some feel for what that might be.
1: Yeah, it totally depends on how you calculate it. And again, because they are, uh, because such a big chunk of the business is earning uh, interest, they have to set aside money for loan loss provision. So that makes this you have to value this in uh, like a, like a financial stock. And there are different ratios and stuff that we are just not used to looking at on the tech side, Dylan.
0: Yeah. And, and one thing I will note, and um, in, in what we do understand when it comes to the financial space, Brian, is um, if, if you're talking about those loan provisions, the, the, the loss provisions, um, we're seeing less and less as a percent of overall revenue being allocated there, which to me signals there's strength in the loans that they're writing. They feel better and better about the performance of those loans. Um, and we're also seeing crucially, that the loan performance is getting better over time. Uh, The charge-offs are declining as you get further and further out, and you see more and more customers coming in. So That's good, because a huge part of the pitch here is we have better data collection, we can make better sense of that data, and all of that leads to us steadily improving, writing what we think to be better loans, and possibly also being able to write loans to folks who normally would fall through the cracks in the financial system.
1: Yep. That's a big part of the thesis here is as we grow, as we gain scale, we're going to get smarter and smarter with making uh, smart loans out to people that, as you said, might not have qualified for credit uh, either. So that is yet another uh, bull case for owning this company.
0: So this company is also taking on what what I would <laughs> Just characterizes a very large, maybe several large giants in the space. You know, payments payments is huge. It's a really fragmented market, um, but you know there are very big legacy players uh, on the consumer credit side. There are also other players in this space. How defensible do you think this business is, Brian?
1: That's going to be a real tough question for for us to answer and look at over time. But again. You can't go from uh, zero to 6.2 6. million uh, uh, consumers and $500 million in revenue in eight years without having some type of, of competitive advantage. They claim that they have the network effect uh, going on, where the more consumers that uh, that uh, sign up for their product, the more they're going to be using them at merchants, the more merchants are signed up, uh, the more that's going to increase their data and allow them to uh, increase their, their analytics, which is going to, in turn, allow them to make more attractive loans to consumers, et cetera, et cetera. So they are saying that they benefit uh, from uh, the network effect. And I, I can see that uh, ramping up. I'm just not going to say it's the strongest network effect uh, that I, I, I've ever uh, seen. But one thing that they do have going for them is those partnerships with, uh, with their merchants. So again, they have partnerships with uh, Walmart and Shopify. Those are two exciting uh, partnerships. And Shopify actually took a Eight or nine percent ownership position in a firm as as part of the deal. So Shopify is invested in in a firm's success. When you combine that with the the data that they have, I do think that they are building a moat for themselves.
0: I think if you want to track the consumer side of that network effect, maybe one of the best ways to do it is to look at the success of the business line they have, where people can use a firm with merchants that don't use a firm. If, if they can create a pretty vibrant um, growth story there, then I think that proves out that people are going to continue to come back to this thing. And it winds up being a preferred provider in the financial space. I do worry that there are elements of this where they, they are going to benefit when someone sees them on a page when they're buying something anyways. And if that's what it is, I'm not nearly as interested in the stock.
1: Uh, fair enough. And I, I think the the option of offering to pay with your product, even at merchants that don't uh, offer it yet, is a wonderful, uh, even if it's a loss leader for the company, it puts you on the merchant's uh, radar. So you can't look at that number alone and track their success because if they're having success with a merchant that's not yet on their uh, their platform, uh, they could potentially become a a partner uh, in in time. So I actually love that part of the business, but I take everything that you uh, just said uh, seriously.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and I think that's that's the right way to think about it, Brian. It doesn't need to be where they make money, but I would like to see that segment of their business continue to grow because it, it's basically sales for them, right? Mm-hmm. It's sales and marketing for them, um, and it's it's proving out the value to customers beyond just what what they happen to find when they're checking out on some other e-commerce player. Um, I do think you know we've seen so many winners come out of the fintech space, Brian, and and this. Has a lot of the hallmarks of a strong player here. Um, there are so many trends pushing this company forward. You don't have to imagine very hard for it to be successful in the future.
1: This is a company that clearly speaks uh, to millennials and Gen Z. Uh, they have a statistic in here that kind of blew my mind. Twenty-five uh, percent of millennials do not carry a credit card. Do not carry a credit card. So that kind of uh, blew me blew me away. Uh, but They believe that their opportunity is just massive. Obviously, there are trillions of dollars flowing through uh, e-commerce, e-commerce, both on and offline, uh, globally, and they want to be a player in that. One way that they do size up their opportunity is to say that buy now, pay later is less than 1% of all transactions in North America, but it is one of the fastest growing payment segments. Uh, some market watchers think that that's going to reach 3% of total transactions by 2023. Uh, for perspective, in uh, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, uh, Buy now, pay later, or pay over time is six percent of transactions, and that is expected to grow to ten percent over time. So, if you buy that thesis, as well as to say nothing about the growing buying power of millennials and Gen Z, this company has plenty of room for growth.
0: I think to put a a cherry on top of that, too, Brian, I, I think there's some really good optionality here with this business, and and I plucked this slide from their prospectus that just kind of tracks some of the different features and things that they've rolled out over time. And so in 2013, they had integrated checkout. And this was the idea that you're, you're paying over time, 0% APR. 2016, they launched their virtual card, which is something that is universally accepted um, with, with uh, Visa Rails, basically. That's that's how they're they're processing all this. Then they have split pay in 2018. It's a fixed payment plan for purchases under a certain threshold. They create their marketplace product, which is personalized, data-driven uh, product discovery. So they're they're putting products in front of customers in twenty nineteen, and then twenty twenty, um, FDIC insured interest-bearing savings account. They, you know, so they are continuing to go further and further into what we consider a like kind of conventional financial products. And I think there are going to be a lot of adjacent markets and a lot of cross sell opportunities for the customers that they have.
1: Totally agree with you there. That's something that management calls out explicitly is that uh, as a growth strategy is we want to create and roll out new products. And uh, currently their biggest personnel expense uh, is R&D and their data analytics. Uh, So they're spending heavily on sales and marketing and and, and overhead, but they are funding uh, R&D aggressively to build out new products. So I agree with you there. There's lots of optionality that this company has.
0: uh, We've talked a little bit about some of their customers and we've name-checked a couple of names that a lot of Fools are probably familiar with, you know, Peloton and Shopify uh, being two. And uh, I think one of the interesting things with Shopify and the way that that partnership is structured is, uh, you know, Shopify has a top it mentality. If they're going to go out and take on a business like Amazon and Amazon is going to basically say, you guys are doing this well, we're going to let you do this. Um, they, they obviously have it together when it comes to e-commerce. And we've seen that story play out over and over again having the partnership with them is wonderful for a firm um, because it not only gets them in front of Shopify, but within Shopify, you're you're diversified among tons of merchants, right? Everyone on the platform. And they are the exclusive provider of, of any of those types of financial services on there. I am relieved to see that there is an equity partnership in place with that agreement because were there not, I think I would look at that, Brian, and say, well, this could be Shopify just doing some market research <laughs> and, and letting and letting someone else's solution see if it's really worth them building it themselves. <laughs>
1: but that is a that is a perfectly valid point there, Dylan. But yeah, we got the data in front of us, so I, I was a, a little bit off. So Shopify owns almost ten percent uh, of this business. So uh, that is a that is a number that is measured in the billions uh, currently. That's two point five billion or so that Shopify has had from that uh, partnership. So yes, it is it is a good sign that you shouldn't worry too much about Shopify saying, hey, we're going to eat your lunch.
0: <laughs> That's always a relief, isn't it? Especially when you have someone who is so driven and effective uh, in the marketplace. Um, I think one of the interesting things to, to watch at this business on the customer side too is just kind of how their cohorts perform. Um, so we, we've we talked a little bit about the retention rates over 100%, um, which, is, which is great. To drill into that a little bit more though, the numbers swing pretty wildly depending on the cohort. That you're looking at. And what we saw in this most recent year is them basically bring in, in terms of uh, GMV, gross merchandise volume, more business than they had in previous years combined for the first year. So they have a very large cohort that we will see the performance of as we head into this new year. But The 2018 cohort saw a 10% gross merchandise volume lift in 2019. Uh, The 2017 cohort basically doubled its GMV in two years. So we are seeing varying degrees of growth within the customers that they're bringing in. But almost across the board, we're seeing growth, which is good.
1: But Absolutely, and it's going to be hard to say how much of this was skewed because of uh, because of 2020. Were these one-time gains? And as we'll get into, they have a pretty sizable customer that it might be hard for them to put up a repeat purchase in the future.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um, before we get there, let's let's talk a little bit about management and culture. I think this was actually us burying the lead a little bit, Brian, because um, <laughs> the the guy calling the shots here at a firm is very well-known in the tech world. And maybe that's why it's okay that this is a tech show Uh, because we're talking about someone who traces roots all the way back to PayPal and being part of the PayPal mafia.
1: Max, uh, Max Levchin is the founder and CEO here. He is part of the PayPal Mafia. He did found, uh, co-found a company uh, that would later become uh, PayPal. Serial entrepreneur, tons of success behind this guy. He actually co-founded another company called Slide, which was sold to Google a few years after for $182 million, to say nothing of the success of PayPal. He was an early investor in a lot of successful ventures, including of, uh, of Yelp. But a firm was a company that he uh, founded uh, on his own, and he is still uh, leading the charge today. And he is also the uh, owns a significant amount of the voting. Uh, if you are investing in this company, just know that he is calling the shots. He owns about twenty percent of uh, uh, shares outstanding uh, in, in in total. Uh, however, his vo- he has super voting shares, so what he says goes.
0: Yeah, and you know we we're not unfamiliar with these types of stories, right? It's just that. If that's the case, you got to be bought into what management's saying because management doesn't really need your sign off to do it.
1: That's exactly correct. But <laughs> we should we should feel good with him him in charge. Not only does he have a history of success behind him, but as usual, we check the Glassdoor reviews and people seem to like uh, working for him. Uh, a firm gets 4.0 stars out of five and 84% of employees would uh, approve of the company and about three quarters of them recommend the company to a friend. So with management here, as you said, we kind of buried the lead by only talking about it <laughs> three quarters of the way into the show.
0: And and I think what with this one, you know, so Levchin is a a serial entrepreneur, has started several businesses. And on the one hand, you're like, wow, proven track record. There's a part of me that's like, is he going to stick around and continue to run this business? Um, And I, I don't really care that much because I think in the right hands, it's probably a successful company. I'd like to see him there for several years just to make sure that you know it's on the right path and we don't see them go public and then he just rides off into the sunset and does something else. Um, but the track record of success is really helpful. And I think critically here, it's in a very similar space. To where he's been before like he isn't leaving and being like, you know, what, I'm going to start a car company. You know, this is this is him operating in a space that he knows well, um, and has been able to read the tailwinds and trends before I have a high degree of confidence that they are going to be able to execute and kind of see where the puck is going as this space continues to develop.
1: Agree with you there. But there was somebody that left PayPal Mafia and started a car company and he did okay for himself, Dylan. But I, <laughs> I agree with you 100% here. Uh, I like that he's staying within the payment space that he knows well. So yes, 100% of the proof of the management here.
0: Yeah, you know, and just investing alongside the PayPal mafia in general has (laughs) proven, you know, let's not get too complicated with the theses here, right? That has proven to be a really wonderful investing thesis in general, you know, investing alongside Elon Musk or Peter Thiel. So, um, yeah, I think leader with proven success in a space that they understand well, that is generally a pretty good recipe for success. Um, there are, of course, some risks when it comes to this business. We we teased it a little bit before, but I think the big one is the customer concentration. Um, you know, we we name check Peloton. They are a large portion of this company's sales. A big part of that is that Peloton has just had such a ridiculous past eighteen months, and their product is kind of perfectly what. You would use a firm for, but you'd like to see that get spread out a bit over time.
1: Totally, but it was still surprising to me. Again, uh, they had sixty five hundred or so merchants. Peloton just one out uh, outdoes both Walmart and Shopify, and accounts for thirty percent. Of sales here, 30%. I totally agree with what you just said. Uh, Pelotons are uh, low four figure uh, purchases. There's a lot of consumers that want to get a, a Peloton because of what was happening uh, in, in 2020. So it was kind of the perfect product for uh, having success on, on a firm. But uh, make no mistake, this company is very levered to Peloton's success.
0: I would be shocked if Shopify was not a larger customer in aggregate with, with all the merchants in a couple of years than, than Peloton. I just, I find that so hard to believe that that wouldn't happen, just given the scale of their platform.
1: I 100% agree with you there, but hey, for, for right now, Peloton <laughs> is beating out Shopify, so hats off to you, Peloton. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and and I mean, if, if it's working for Peloton, I I am I can't imagine that that relationship's going to go bad, you know. Um, but it is something to note. I think one of the other things that to keep in mind is you have all of the traditional financial providers that are offering, you know, what we would think of as cr- traditional credit, right? And and those are um, payment options that are going to be competitive with what a firm is doing, uh, but. Affirm is also not the only player in the kind of new age uh, layaway space.
1: That's right. Afterpay would be kind of the one that, uh, to my mind, almost invented uh, this market and has just seen tremendous uh, success. But other companies are starting to get on in this game, uh, most notably uh, PayPal and Klarna, to say nothing of all of the credit card companies out there that offer products that do compete with this. So it's an incredibly uh, competitive space, but it's also incredibly lucrative space if you can be successful.
0: Yeah. And and I think that they have a lot of the elements that you'd like to see there. Um, the The big thing for me is I'd like to see slightly more transactions per customer. I'd like to see them deepen their relationships with the people and prove out that they really have an ecosystem that people are participating in rather than just kind of accidentally using them when they run into a purchase that it makes sense for them to use. Um, we do need to make a note about some of their internal controls, Brian. You know, we're, we're, we're an investing show and sometimes we've got to get into the weeds. Uh, there was one thing that popped out to you rolling through the prospectus to the point that you bolded and italicized it in our outline.
1: That's right. It was, if you read through their S1, uh, the words that you never want to see is material weakness and internal control over financial reporting. Uh, That basically says the auditors looked at their books and a material weakness uh, uh, came came up that could cause them to materially misstate their financial statements. Importantly, this was pre- IPO this was back in uh, June that auditors uh, uh, found this, and they are actively working through there but uh, make no make no mistake you don't want to see financial weaknesses and this company has to had to uh, ha- had to disclose it. I have full confidence that they will fix that problem, but it is worth noting
0: one other thing I think investors should probably keep in mind here too is you know th- the valuation is rich. Um, it, we're talking about a business that's done just under $600 million in trailing 12-month sales. They're growing at an incredibly fast clip, um, but we talked about it before, $28 billion valuation, roughly, as of taping. So That's just under 50 times sales. Um, that's, that's a rich valuation for a company that doesn't necessarily have the gross margin profile for a lot of businesses we talk about on the show.
1: It's very highly valued, there's no doubt. And you have a note in here that it reminds you of Lemonade. I think that does a wonderful comparison. It's the Lemonade of uh, of payments. But uh, Lemonade has proven to be a pretty successful investment here. But yeah, make no mistake, this company is priced for hyper, hyper growth. So it better come through
0: yeah and if they can stay in the high double digits, you know that's fine. they you know people are going to be totally okay with that valuation um, it It really does remind me quite a bit of lemonade and and the reason for that is is kind of in their relationship that they have with consumers. you know i I remember um, listening to something Tom Gardner was saying talking about lemonade. you know he's a, he's a huge fan of the stock and basically saying like how many people are excited about their insurer? How many people are like bragging about their insurer to their friends and feel like they have a really great relationship that that has no animosity, you know, uh, between them? And and I think that a firm starts to get at that as well. Where if you give people a no nonsense, very straightforward product in a space where they are used to getting nickel and dimed by every provider, it's going to click at some point. It's going to make sense. They already have millions of users, and I think if they can continue to communicate that vision, um and that product expectation, they're going to get a lot more. In some ways, you know, the IPO could almost be a marketing event for them. We've seen that with, with so many companies in the past where it really raises the profile of their business and you start to see mass adoption of the product because more and more people are aware of it.
1: 100% agree. And let's get back to that point. Net promoter score was 78. It is nice to be competing against other companies that consumers do not like and do not have a positive opinion of. So, uh, yeah, I, the payment space is so huge, so massive. There's there is plenty of room uh, for lots of, of winners in the space, and a firm could be one.
0: Brian, we have done a ton of watch list, prospectus, pitch-type shows in the last couple months. Uh What's your take on a firm right now? Is this something that that belongs in your portfolio, belongs on your watch list? How are you thinking about it? It checks a
1: lot of the boxes in the things that I that I look for. I will have to get incre- I will have to grow my comfort with the company uh, as as a public entity, as well as really dig into and see how the financials uh, transform over time. But uh, I like uh, I like the brand. I like some of the things that it stands for. I Clearly, like the management team, and I like uh, like the growth. So this will be one that I watch, but I'm not going to race out to to buy it, especially given the huge run up that I had uh, post IPO. But how about you, Dylan?
0: I think I'm in the same boat. I think I think the business is really interesting. I think it's it's a disruptor in a space that is probably in desperate need of disruption, um, and it offers something really unique to consumers. There's also we didn't even really get into this, Brian, but you know there is the tech and data advantage that they claim to have, and we're seeing that bear out a little bit with their charge offs. Um, we'll see what that looks like over time. But really, if they are able to grab better insights into Creditworthiness, the you know the, who people should be willing to extend loans to, that becomes a competitive edge at some point because you can take a lot of people who maybe traditionally wouldn't qualify for things and give them access to capital and make things a lot easier, turn them into customers for life. So, I, so I think there's a lot of good stuff there. Um, I think just as someone watching the fintech space, this is a company to watch. There are other companies out there just strictly on growth and margin profile that I'm a little bit more interested right now. But for where the industry is going, I think this is definitely a company to keep tabs on.
1: Totally. Fintech is a wonderful, wonderful place for investors to park long-term capital. So this uh, this might be a good company to check out.
0: Yeah. And you know what? We're going to continue to keep our eye on this one. We're going to Brian. We've done so many prospectus shows over like the last twelve months. I think we're just going to need to do a lightning round check-in at some point in the next like the next six months, just to make sure that we're not losing track of anything we've discussed.
1: I think that that's a fabulous idea, Dylan, <laughs> Just to remind people of all the tu- all the companies that we've talked about.
0: <laughs> Sometimes I forget myself, uh, Brian. Thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Thank you, Dylan. Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at fool.com, or you can tweet us at MFIndustryFocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show. The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on!